Welcome to Sideline Sleuths, a true crime podcast all about the tragic yet fascinating cases no one can seem to get enough of. I'm Megan. And I'm Jasmine. We're so glad you're listening. If you like being an armchair detective, you'll love being a sideline sleuth. Today we're going to talk about the 2007 disappearance of a 12-year-old boy named Jalik Rainwalker who went missing in Greenwich, New York. Jalik is biracial, so he has one black parent and one white parent, and he uses the nickname J. He also has a speech impediment where he pronounces the letter R like the letter W. Jalik was last seen at the home of his adoptive paternal grandparents. His adoptive father, Stephen Kerr, says that he woke up at 7.30 in the morning on November 2nd, 2007, and found a note from Jalik, but no sign of him. He has never been seen again. Before we get into Jalik's last known whereabouts, I want to give you some background information about him. Jalik was described as having severe emotional problems and was diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder, also known as RAD. His adoptive parents claim that Jalik was both suicidal and homicidal, but said that he was not receiving any kind of therapy, nor was he taking any medications for his mental health or these feelings. Oh. (laughs) Seems like a red flag right away. Okay, questions. Reactive attachment disorder isn't very common, but it makes it difficult for those who have it to form and maintain healthy relationships. It stems from an infant or a small child not having their basic needs met for things like attention, affection, and comfort. So when someone lacks nurturing, loving, and stable connections so young, it can impact their ability to develop them later on in life. That makes sense. Jalik's birth mother had a history of substance abuse and used drugs while she was pregnant with him. He was exposed to both alcohol and cocaine in the womb. At some point, though I'm not sure when, he was placed into the foster system. But he wasn't in a traditional foster care system. He was in a therapeutic setting and placed with people who were supposed to be equipped to handle children with special needs. His adoptive parents said that Jalik had violent outbursts and that his siblings were afraid of him. Because of this, he bounced around between foster homes, living in six different ones before he was adopted. So before he was even 12? Yeah. At the time of his disappearance, he had been living with his adoptive parents, Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald, for five years. So really, that means... the time he was seven, he had lived in five oh, homes before then. That's a lot of moving yeah. around. And so we don't know picture, how probably. early he went into the system. So it could be in seven years, but it could have been two years or three or something. So he went to a lot of different foster homes before he was even seven. Okay. Before living with Stephen and Jocelyn, Jalik had other foster parents who were also planning on adopting him. He lived with them for four years, but when he was seven... Okay, so I totally forgot about that time frame. So those other homes are in a much shorter period of time. So when he was seven, he attacked their daughter. And that's when he left to go live with Stephen and Jocelyn and their children. And they have three biological sons and an adopted daughter who were between the ages of eight and 14 when Jalik vanished. Okay, so when he was seven, 
he had already been with this family for, for four, four years, years. So when he was three. So by the time he's 12, he had nine of those years with two people. Wow. And the rest of it with the other four. Yeah. That's, so that's a lot of movement. Yeah. A lot of movement, a lot of movement quickly. Yeah. And that's, I can understand why he'd have a hard time connecting with people because they're all seem temporary. Yeah. Even the most long lasting. Yeah. Seem temporary. Like he thought that was his forever family and even they were temporary. So. Ooh. Jocelyn previously authored a parenting blog called Macro Parent, but it has since been deleted. Um, yeah. This anyway, is like a foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> More questions. Anyway, um, going forward, when I mention Stephen and Jocelyn as a couple or as a family, I'll call his adoptive parents the Kerrs, even though Jocelyn has a different last name of McDonald. It's just easier to say the Kerrs. So the Kerrs had what some people, especially in this day and age, would call an unconventional lifestyle. They lived in a rural part of New York in a two-room cabin that did not have indoor plumbing, running water, or electricity. They used outhouses for their toilets, and their electricity came from a generator that they only used for, like, select hours every day. So it was, like, rustic. They were roughing it. Um, furthermore, the entire family, so five children, including Jalik, and two parents all slept in the same bedroom. Mm. Reportedly, this is, like, they chose to live this way because they said it was better for the environment. And I'm not really sure how they got cleared to be foster parents, to be honest, because it seems like they don't have the space or, like, the ability to take care of someone in Jalik's, like, yes, with very special circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then he not only was placed there, but they ended up being like cleared to adopt him. So that's kind of fishy to me. Um, so when you think about the struggles that Jalik was facing, forming attachments and building relationships with people, a two-room cabin where you would sleep in the same bedroom with six other people gave him like no escape, like no space. There, there was also no doors in their home either. What? So I can, yeah, I can imagine it would be it would be difficult for me to be in that situation. But somebody who, like is going to have outbursts or need to pull away sometimes and, like, collect themselves to have nowhere to go. Yeah, I think I just know so many stories about people who, like, live in a confined space and how that exacerbates any relational problems you're Mm going to have, period, even if you don't have rad. Yeah. So, So. and I worked as a behavior um, resource specialist before I was a librarian, and we had specific, like, cool-down rooms for children who had similar challenges, and he, like, had nowhere to go. So for outside, I guess. Yeah. So Jalik's family still owns the home that they lived in with him, but in 2008, they actually moved across state lines to Vermont. I had a student one time when I was working behavior specialist who had reactive attachment disorder, and I asked her permission to talk about her in this episode. So she's 20 years old now, but I taught her science when she was 12 in the seventh grade in middle school, and then I moved all the way across the state in like 300 miles west and so did she mm-hmm. and then I taught her again when she was wow. in, yeah in 10th grade but when I had her in middle school she was not she had she was not identified so she didn't have any like special education paperwork and then when I got her in 10th grade she did so this was like she had recently been diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder so like Jalik my student was also adopted She was born in Haiti, but a few weeks after her birth, her mother died, and that's when she was in placement for adoption. So she arrived in the United States with her adoptive parents when she was 13 months old, 
And so I'm, I'm really close to this girl. I've known her now, so like eight years. And she actually visits me here and I visit her because she still lives on the other side of the state. And it just like makes me sad to think that all the things she's gone through that Jalik went through because she has a really good support network. Mm. And like I talk to her every day and that I guess in and of itself is kind of miraculous almost because she does struggle with forming these bonds, but we are really close. And she wasn't receiving the attention, affection, or comforts she needed as a baby. And like makes me sad because I'm so close to her and neither was Jalik, but fortunately she was put into like the best possible family ever who was committed to helping her by whatever means necessary. She actually went to a therapeutic boarding school twice, once in like eighth or ninth grade, and then again like 11th and 12th grade-ish. So when it said that Jalik wasn't seeing a therapist and didn't take any medication, he basically had no support from his family, even though they said his emotional problems were severe, that was really shocking because that environment was, uh, environment was obviously not the best for him. Yeah, if you can see like the best case scenario yeah. with- that student that you were close with and then see this one and be like, oh, well. And I've watched her still struggle despite, like, she's doing amazing now, but um, she went to the therapeutic boarding school, came home, and then had to go back to another one. So I've seen, like, the challenges she's had despite having all these tools and, like, they were, like, really committed to her success and it didn't seem like anybody was committed to Jalik's. If anything, it was, like, the total opposite, like, he was regressing in the time he spent with his adoptive family instead of progressing. So my kid said that she was prescribed medications when she was younger, like in the early years of her diagnosis, but that she never remembered to take them, so they weren't effective for her. Mm -hmm. But she thinks that therapy has been integral to her success and that it has worked wonders for her to have this just another person to talk to. So at the very least, Jalik should have been receiving that. Yeah. Yeah, I have questions about, like, whether or not they were super informed when they took him on yeah. or, like, uh, like was the adoption agency <laughs> informed well, about Well, it was like, Foster Adopt, so it was the state of New York. And they were supposed to be therapeutic foster parents, like, extra yeah, training. Been in yes, therapeutic yeah. foster homes. They were supposed to receive extra stuff to get cleared for his placement, Gosh. but then they didn't do it. So like, I don't know. You said he had, like, an incident right before he got to them. So yes. maybe it was, like, we just need to get him a home or yeah. there's, like, a certain level of desperation. Yeah. I'm just trying to play the devil's advocate. Or he might have been receiving those things before he was officially theirs. And then maybe after they adopted him, they right. were, like, they got to call the shots. I could be, like, no. Because they're kind of unconventional. So maybe they yeah, were, like, against off the Western grid, medicine and stuff sure. like that. Yeah. So off the grid. So. Okay. So, so Jalik and Steven were staying at Steven's parents' house in Greenwich, New York when Jalik went missing. And Stephen said he wakes up at 7.30, and Jalik isn't there, but he found a note. And the note says, Dear everybody, I'm sorry for everything. I won't be a bother anymore. Goodbye, Jalik. So then Stephen reports him missing just before 9 a.m. It's not believed that Jalik took any form of money with him when he left, so lots of people question whether Jalik really ran away at all, and wonder perhaps if Stephen actually harmed him and has just been covering it up this whole time. On October 23rd, 2007, so a little bit more than a week before Jalik went missing, Stephen called a crisis hotline and said that Jalik was unmanageable and was threatening another child in his homeschooling group and that he and his wife didn't want him in their home anymore and wanted to reverse the adoption. And when I first read that, I was like, uh, I don't think you can do that. And I was right. You cannot. That's not possible. An adoption reversal isn't possible. And so the person at the hotline 
suggested respite care instead. And respite care is when a sick, elderly, or disabled person is placed somewhere else temporarily to give their primary caregiver a break. So Jalik was sent to the home of another licensed foster family, Tom and Elaine Person, um, because they had provided respite care for him in the past. So he stayed there for a few days, and they actually returned him to Stephen on November 1st. November 2nd, that morning, is when Jalik was gone. And Stephen was planning on sending Jalik off to another respite home that same day, November 2nd, when he allegedly woke up to Jalik not being there. So on the 23rd, he calls and is like, I don't want this kid anymore. And they're like, let's try respite care. So then he goes to Tomney Lane's. He stays there for like a week or so. Stephen picks him up on the 1st. On the 2nd, he's going to drop him off somewhere else. Yeah. So... And if you notice, it said he reported missing like an hour and a half later after he noticed he was gone. Yeah. And he had a note, so so you know he's he a left. runaway. Yeah. yeah, he left. Or something like that. Not something you yeah, can you know, immediately you report. At least know he's gone, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like you searched for him. He clearly left or was no longer present, whether he left on his own or not. So when the police were notified of Jalik's disappearance, they did an extensive search of the area, but his whereabouts were still unknown. And Jalik is only 12, and like I said, he didn't have any money on him that they knew of. So how long could he really survive on his own? So after a couple days, the police announced that they were considering the possibility that Jalik was a victim of foul play instead. They did not believe that Jalik harmed himself, and they had ruled out the idea that he actually ran away. So being harmed... yeah, like The police themselves. they said he wasn't a runaway. Wow. So they... The only theory that they really had was that somebody harmed him. Like, that was the only thing that was plausible to them. And I know people who say that their dad or someone in their family is a detective and that they've told them, like, you should never, ever take a polygraph. And because they're not necessarily accurate and they're rarely admissible in court, but still investigators like to administer them. So Jocelyn, Jalik's adoptive mother, she took one. And Stephen, his adoptive father and the last person with him, did not. So to this day... Both of them continue to deny any involvement in his disappearance and maintain the stance that he ran away. So Jocelyn took yes, the polygraph. But, but Stephen refused. So his family suggested that he ran away to go find people who looked more like him. This got weird immediately. Yeah. So they were kind of hinting at like that Jalik had some sort of identity crisis. So he's mixed. He has a, a white parent and a black parent. And his adoptive parents, they're both white. Well, they said that Jalik only identified with his, like, African-American, and I don't want to say side because there's not, like, a side of yourself, but he didn't consider himself to be white. He, and I find that to be pretty common with most of my biracial friends. They don't identify as their white side of them. Side is the, I don't know what word to say there, but. Component, I don't know. Side is fine with uh, me. Okay, so. I'm also, I'm also biracial. What other, what two races are you? My mom's Asian. Oh, yeah. And my dad is oh, like black. Sasha. Yeah, we're yeah, Asian. Oh, there you go. Good to know. I just <laughs> learned today, guys, that Jasmine was Asian. So, <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay, so Jalik has one black parent, one white parent, but he doesn't consider himself to be white. So they said that he was very interested in quote unquote black culture. So they said that he thought he possibly ran off to live somewhere where there were more black people, or maybe even that he joined a gang. That's, that's they what they said. They made it so weird. Yeah. So, police said that Stephen repeatedly said that he believes Jalik joined a street gang. And the cops say they found literally nothing suggesting that. So, he's just going to run off into the woods and, then and just, just be like, like, 
like, hoo hoo and just, <laughs> just a gang member's gonna be like, hello, there you are, we've been looking for you. That was hilarious. <laughs> I forgot where I was. So he joined a gang. That's what they said. And that just seems like hella racist to me. For people um, who adopted a biracial boy, they seem, no, nah, I'm not judging. You know I'm always judging. Yeah. But yeah, it I'm seems judging. like they aren't very... Offensive and insensitive. Yeah, they're like, not very sensitive to, like, the needs of a person who's... I mean, every 12-year-old's gonna try to figure out who they are. Every yeah. adopted kid's gonna try oh, to figure yeah, out definitely. who they are. So have and you not has, braced yourself for any of this? Like, whether he was, like, thing. Asian or, like, whatever he was. He yeah. could have just been white, and he would have still been wondering, yeah. who am I? Yeah, 12-year-olds are going through an identity crisis regardless of the their yeah. ethnic makeup. This is being a parent. And period. there are gangs in all races. So, I mean, yeah. I don't think Julie joined the Aryan Brotherhood or something. I don't think there was, like, a lot of gangs nearby in the woods, but I don't know a lot about I, Greenwich, I New York. Either, I don't either. But they didn't, it just seemed like they said it as, like, a jab, basically. Yeah, like, it's well, undercutting and kind of... He really wanted to be black, so he must have ran off to join a gang. Like, it just yeah. seemed like they completely, like, pulled that out of nowhere. Wow. So. so, at this point, I feel some type of way about his adopted family. Uh, for one... He said he noticed Julie was gone at 7.30 in the morning, didn't call the police for an hour and a half. Tom and Elaine, the respite care providers, said that the note Stephen found wasn't what he said it was at all. They said that, so they had Jalik for like a week, that Stephen had assigned Jalik a writing task to write an apology to the people he had harmed. So Tom and Elaine say that that's what the note was, and it wasn't a goodbye note. They said that Tom specifically saw Jalik writing the note, but didn't read it, so he couldn't say with, like, 100% certainty that it was the same note, but, like, at a glance of seeing what he was doing, he's pretty certain that the alleged runaway note was actually the homework assignment that Stephen had told Jalik to, to Whoa, do. Oh, there's foul play. So that totally seems like premeditated. premeditated. Yes. Wow, we're so, twins! Yeah. Doing this podcast has made us closer. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> we are just, one. Yeah. So... I don't know. He just wanted to spin this a certain way. Like, he planned it, I think, if that's what happened. And yeah. he used the... It was it was intelligent on his part to have the forethought to do this. Yeah. And, I mean, if you're thinking about middle schoolers and how they would write a note... Yeah, they're definitely like, going to write goodbye. I'm write three sentences yeah, and then not, I write goodbye. Yeah. Even though it's you're not saying goodbye. Like, if I yeah. had... A, if, like, if a kid made, did something wrong to you at school and I was like, you need to write her an apology note, it's going to sound a lot of like this. Yeah. Like, dear Jasmine. Well, they're not going to call you Jasmine. Like, yeah. But they're going to be like, I'm so sorry. I'm terrible. Please forgive me. I'll never do it again. Like, goodbye forever. <laughs> yeah. Peace. Yeah. <laughs> so that's exactly how it's going to sound. So Elaine and Tom believe that the note that he had was that homework assignment. And Elaine, as well as several other foster parents who had Jalik previously, and his adoptive maternal grandparents, so that's Jocelyn's parents, they're all, like, team they did it. Yeah. So they... Actually, Megan, when you were explaining it to me, I didn't, like... I was, like, trying to, like, hold back from assuming that they had done something. Like, there was some foul play. But the police and now the maternal Mm -hmm. adoptive grandparents and the respite care. And other foster parents who know about his emotional struggles. People who know Jalik well. Yeah. Yeah. So they started this online petition to publicize and bring awareness to Jalik's disappearance. And Elaine, the respite care lady, she began to like flat out say that she thinks Stephen Kerr harmed Jalik on the day he went missing. And that he's not a runaway and he was abducted and that he was like definitely, like she's just like, She's not mincing words. She's like, I think Stephen Kerr did something to Jalik. Respect. Yeah. So then Barbara Reilly, she is the maternal grandmother, the adoptive one. So she's Jocelyn's mom. She's been very active and vocal during the search for him. So she even filed for custody of Jalik after his disappearance, but was denied it because 
a judge said there was no legal basis for this custody change. But she thought that if she had it or if somebody else had legal custody of Jalik, it would be beneficial for the investigation because it had been hindered up to this point because the people who do have custody are not cooperative and are kind of suspects. So, and I think she's right. Like, it's not unusual once a child goes missing for there to be this kind of switch. Like, if a parent, as a parent, you're entitled to certain information, like more information than just anybody else, like you can see medical records or you can request documents from like a government agency like CPS or something if you have custody or if you're the parent. Um, so I think if she would have got custody or literally anybody else would have got it outside of Stephen and Jocelyn, that they could have done more to help find him. And like if a parent, like in cases of custodial interference, like if I have custody of my son, but his dad has like regular visitation, if his dad just didn't return him from visitation or something, I could petition for custody change to have full custody, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not abnormal. That would happen. His dad would never do that. So it's not abnormal, I think, for them to have changed it to somebody else in Jalik's absence. But for whatever reasons, they said no. And Barbara said that they haven't done, like, anything to find Jalik. She said, quote, their lack of cooperation astonishes me. It would only benefit them if he was found unless they harmed him, end quote. Because if they if they found him, then it would be like, look, we're clear we didn't do it. But they're not trying to find him at all, according to Barbara. Yeah, and the timeline of them, like, saying they wanted to reverse the adoption is just... Yeah. suspect. too big to be a coincidence. I mean, and maybe, I mean, worst case scenario, like, if I'm being really, really generous, like, oh, he went missing and we didn't we want him anymore, which just sounds horrible out loud, then it, maybe that's why they wouldn't look. Like, if I'm being, like... Oh, because they didn't want him anyway? Yeah. Yeah, so, like, it's kind of nice that he's not around, which yeah. is terrible, but I can yeah, see Yeah, but that, then yeah. you have someone that clearly, like, maternal adoptive grandmother clearly him loves him, wants yeah. him, and there's other... I mean, there's other people, even respite care yeah. people, that are like, who are, like we'll, we'll make it happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who want him to come back and be found. So, in January of 2008, so that's pretty quickly when you think about the pace of some other cases that we've discussed. Mm-hmm. So, he went missing November of 2007. So, like, two months later... Um, investigators named Stephen as a person of interest in Jalik's disappearance because they uncovered video surveillance footage from a bank in Greenwich that shows him driving his gold Chrysler town and country van around Greenwich after midnight on the night that Jalik supposedly ran away, despite Stephen saying he was asleep at that time. Alibi? I mean, it's not really an alibi. You can't help. Yeah, you can't be your own alibi. But so he was, gave them a a statement that they could prove wrong with surveillance. And prior to discovering that video, police had already searched the van but found no evidence. But Stephen's phone records show him moving about the town differently than how he claimed. So he mentioned he took a very specific route home from picking up Jalik from respite care to his parents' house in Greenwich. And his phone records show that to be false. And remember, like, in Julia's story, we talked about how, like, when you're really specific, that's weird. Like, Mm -hmm. and not really specific, and they proved it to be false. Wow. So, authorities searched for Jalik's body in the Hudson River, which is an area that Stephen's phone record showed him as being when he said he was somewhere else entirely. But they did not find him. They did say, though, that there were numerous inconsistencies in Stephen's version of events. So... Later, your story shouldn't be weird. Yeah, it shouldn't be easy to like the truth doesn't change. You only have to remember things if it's a lie, at least this early. Like, time does change your memory, but this is like from the jump. He's being that was in bed, yeah, he wasn't. So, later in January, someone mails an anonymous typed letter to several local media outlets about Jalik's disappearance. 
The letter read, Jalik still alive. Needed a foot soldier for this war on drugs. Picked him up Route 40 post 30. He's okay. No fake. He says, asks his mama and papa, who are the macaroni family? My cat named Diamond. Why did Franti yell fire? Don't try to look. We are not there. End quote. That's cryptic. Yeah, and also, like, the worst grammar. Jalik writes better than this. and Even in his goodbye note. Even in his goodbye note. And they clearly were trying to make their gang theory work. Needed a foot soldier. Well, foot soldier is just vocabulary that's a little bit higher than the whole rest of yeah. the thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, But, like, they're like, oh, we said he joined the gang. Here's proof, basically. Like The weirdest. What gang weirdest members... Way. I mean, I don't have much knowledge of gangs. Probably more than, like, the average librarian, honestly. But, like, who just drives around and is like, there's a young black kid by himself. Gonna recruit him as my foot soldier. And more then send so his family a note. Like, you would just not send this note. Gang members are keeping up with local news and know how to contact their nearest media specialist. Like, oh, okay, I'm gonna reach out to these three reporters because they write whatever. I don't it, understand. It just seems sense. oddly, odd and oddly convenient. Yeah, this was an adult human. Yeah. Who was trying to sound like an idiot when they wrote this. And they succeeded, though it yeah. did not achieve yeah. its purpose. <laughs> yeah, they succeeded in sounding dumb. So the Kerr's lawyer, Jeffrey Morris, said that he and his clients believe only Jalik could have provided the information contained in the cryptic letter. And of course they would say that. The letter says to ask his parents about these things, which means they have knowledge of these topics as well. So um, couldn't they have wrote the note then? Like... Moore said there's some very specific information there that could only have come from him. There's only one explanation. It's Jalik. False. There are two explanations. Jalik wrote it, or Mama and Papa did, because he asked them to, like, verify this information with them, which means he's not the only person in the whole world who knows that. So. I think that... So they declined, obviously, to comment or respond about this. And I think it's... I don't know. Jalik's maternal grandmother said that the note was just... Like a hoax. It was meant to draw attention away from the yeah. investigation and the inconsistencies of their statements and the behavior yeah. and of anyone could have done that if it was a hoax, if any information was published about this case yeah. at all. Whatsoever. Those three questions, I think, would only. Okay, he did have a cat named Diamond, but the rest of it, they were like, we don't know what that's about. But how many people knew he had a cat named Diamond? Could have been have anyone said, yeah. that. Anyone. Anybody who knew that, so. The local state police requested that the letters be checked for fingerprints and any other form of potential forensic evidence, but there was no return address. But it was postmarked from Westchester, New York. And when I tried to look up the distance on Google Maps, it kept correcting it to Westchester County. So if those are the same thing, that's a minimum of 160 miles from Greenwich, where Jalik went missing. And investigators reached out to the FBI and the U.S. Postal Service inspectors, which I didn't know that was a thing, to see if they could figure out where that letter originally was mailed from so but it was 160 miles away from the address where he was last seen so again could just be any rando yeah but the there was no significance to the other statements just the cat so it just i feel like it's not it can't be 100 percent random because of the cat thing but it's it doesn't have to be julie like that's not the only explanation so law enforcement that's made, the least likely yeah, explanation the least, but yeah law enforcement made a public appeal for the author to provide them with more information but they never did on february 7th police obtained and executed a search warrant on the home where Stephen and julie stayed before he vanished which is Stephen's father's house 
And then days later, they, the adoptive parents, filed a lawsuit against the police claiming that they had been detained illegally and that the home, the search of their home was improper. But police had a search warrant and insisted that they followed all laws and policies while conducting that search. But they did seize evidence from the home, including a computer and a printer, which they thought might be relevant because of this note. You guys, listeners, know how much we love, love, love when family members go like DIY detective and CSI for their people. So we have given like huge props to Tom's mom, Penny, and Julia's mom, Kim, and Nikki's sister, Tess, and all these people for being relentless advocates for their loved ones. Because honestly, if someone in my family was missing or murdered, I don't even know how I'd handle it. Like, I'm not going to say I wouldn't do something crazy or illegal, um, but desperate times call for desperate measures, and you have no idea what you would do until you're in that situation. So there are... I'm getting to the point here. There are some variations of this quote, like, quote, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. And that's, like, definitely true that unjust laws must be challenged. And when you're desperate, you may even break an otherwise good law, but have good intentions. So such is the case here. In July of 2008, Jocelyn's mother, Barbara Reilly, was charged with burglarizing her daughter and son-in-law's home. So much respect! Yes, and she pleaded... Barbara, I would bail yeah, you out! Same, I, I would. If I had money, I would too. We could go fund me this. <laughs> she pleaded not guilty, but the police did say that they removed things from the home for testing based off of her saying thing, something that she saw inside the home during her illegal search. So cool! So, I'm not, like, advocating that you should burglarize homes, but, like, But I'm so girl, impressed! Yes, yeah. And if my grandson was missing, I don't have one, but if some of my was missing i'm not saying i wouldn't do this like to the ends of the earth to to like find somebody you care about you know so i'm so i'm filled with like some warm feelings like good job barbara so she told the media barbara did that stephen had anger problems and had actually gone to counseling for these issues and said that her daughter moved out of the family home twice both briefly in 2007 due to stephen's angry and aggressive behavior towards their children which is the same year jaleek went missing Barbara said she once witnessed Stephen, in a fit of anger, drag Jalik outside and repeatedly dunk him in a nearby creek. Oh my goodness, even that incident could have turned out horribly. She said that Jocelyn made Stephen write an apology letter, so apparently that's a thing in this family. Not an effective way. She told Stephen to apologize to Jalik and then do the child's chores for a month, which hardly makes up for this. Not that anything ever would, but he almost drowned him. Please write him a note and then fold his laundry or something? I don't know. So, where we are now with this, so that's like 11 and a half years, right? So, when the fifth anniversary of Jalik's disappearance was approaching, investigators announced that they had checked out nearly 500 leads and that they were now changing the direction of their investigation. They upgraded the case from that of a missing person to that of a homicide. But I feel like we could have came to that conclusion much sooner. But maybe they did. Maybe they did. They just didn't announce it for five years, but better late I'll than give never. them credit. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty normal that when someone goes missing, their family will put up some kind of reward for information leading to their whereabouts or an arrest or the discovery of something. And Jalik's parents did that, but with a really bizarre twist. So as time passes, the reward amount decreases. Instead of increases. So if you remember Molly Miller and Colt Haynes, that reward kept going up and up as time went on. So like right now it's $45,000 because they really want to find Molly and Colt. And as time goes on, it's harder to get information. So you've got to make it more enticing. So they just want answers and they were like kept increasing the money. And the Kurs did the opposite of that. 
A missing child blog said that the reward offered by the parents will continue to decrease each month until someone gives them information to collect it or the money runs out. A New York-based newspaper published an article called Police Study Jalik Letter on February 1st of 2008, and in it, it said, quote, there is a reward available for Jalik's safe return to his family. Although it was originally a $25,000 reward, as of today, it's $15,000. So that was really quickly, like 90 days after he vanishes, and also shortly after Stephen was named a person of interest, their reward had dropped by $10,000. But what's also bizarre this was also posted on the same missing person blog. Someone said that Stephen had been seen around Greenwich and Cambridge tearing down flyers advertising a vigil for Jalik. Like, how it's dumb are you? Weird couple of people. At least weird to They look weird. Oh. So, that was really judgmental. I apologize. No, I started it. <laughs> After Jalik had been missing for eight years or so, several psychics reached out to investigators claiming to have information, but their tips didn't lead to anything. On December 17th, 2015, so eight years after Jalik was last seen, human remains were discovered in Fulton County, New York. And I'm not sure of their exact location, but according to Google Maps, Fulton County is like an hour and a half west of Greenwich. Immediately, people began to speculate if they were Jalik's. However, about six months later, police announced that the remains actually belonged to a young black female instead. Super um, sad. What? And I don't know who that was. On February 26, 2017, human remains were found again on state land near an area where the Hudson River flows during floods and high tides. A hiker discovered a portion of a skull buried in wetlands, and again, everyone's minds immediately went to Jalik. So police looked for any other potential evidence and recovered clothes from the area, but didn't say if the clothes ended up being related to the skull or not. Initially, a forensic anthropologist with the state's Department of Environmental Conservation concluded that the skull portion was that of a child, likely a boy between the ages of 10 and 13, and that the remains had been exposed to the elements for between 5 and 10 years. At the time of the discovery, Jalik had been missing about 9 years, so the remains were sent for testing to see if DNA could be extracted and compared to missing person cases like Jalik's, but... The tests concluded that the skull actually belonged to an adult male and not a child. So both of these discoveries got people's hopes up and ended up being unrelated. But the good news is that it shows people were still thinking about Jalik. Investigators and the public immediately relate these discoveries to his case, which means that he hasn't been forgotten. And once people stop thinking about him is when it goes unsolved forever. Yeah. So the fact that any remains, they immediately think like, well, maybe it's Jalik is a good thing. Yeah. So. All of the theories I've seen on the internet are centered around Stephen harming Jalik in some way. Some theories include Jocelyn being aware of it, insinuating that it was premeditated, while other theories think she knows about it after the fact and is just helping cover it up. Some even don't include her at all and place all of the blame solely on Stephen. I, I think she has to know, but I don't know if she was involved. But I think she has to know, at least after the fact. Yeah. I don't think there's no, I don't think she's, there's, there's no way, to me at least, that she's completely in the dark. Either she was in on it and it was premeditated, or he told her about it later and she's helping him hide it. Yeah, I just feel like as an adopted mother, if, I mean, you just put it all in the line to get any information you could, and their, their stamp together seems to be to obstruct yeah. justice. Yeah. So... I saw this one blog post written by a guy named Kevin. I believe his website is kbrocking.com. Anyway, he has this post, quote, Was Jalik Rainwalker buried at the Phantom Laboratory in Greenwich? 
I immediately was like, ooh, Phantom. I feel like, I don't know, I was in a really sinister Scooby-Doo episode. But when I looked it up, it didn't, like, it didn't help me at all. So the lab's website said that they have 41 acres of hiking, biking, and snowshoe trails. And I have no idea what they do exactly. In their own words, it says that they manufacture dependable, high-precision phantoms. And that didn't help me narrow it down at all because in my brain, a phantom is a masked villain on Scooby-Doo. Okay. So, do you know what a phantom is? I feel like it's a vehicle, but mm, I, don't I don't know. So anyway, if you know what this is, uh, tell me. So I don't know if that land was searched, if the phantom laboratory was searched, or if it wasn't. Um, but his post is literally the only place I've seen anybody mention that. So it may or may not be credible, but it was floating around that he was buried at the, the phantom laboratory. I'm not sure what happened to Jalik because there isn't physical evidence pointing in any direction. All we know is that Stephen was with him last, and Stephen's timeline of events are inconsistent with the actual tangible evidence such as phone records and video surveillance. But other than that, there's nothing. In my opinion, something happened to Jalik inside the home that the two stayed in together, and his body was disposed of somehow. How he died or where he his body is now remain a mystery. Authorities stated that they have little evidence as to his fate and no one has been charged in connection with this case, but foul play is suspected in his disappearance. He is presumed to be deceased. If you have any information about the disappearance of Jalik Rainwalker or his current whereabouts, please contact the Cambridge Greenwich Police Department at 518-692-9332. Thank you for listening to Sideline Scoops. If you have any comments or questions about this case or just feedback about the show in general, you can find us online at facebook.com slash sideline sleuths.